2: Hey everyone, I want to let you know that we talk about suicide in this episode. There are some links to resources in the episode description if you need them.
3: I loved everything about my life. And then I joined this convent to follow God, thinking in my mind, that everyone was going to love everyone and it was going to be double what I had at home and it was completely different. I said meet me up on the third floor and then she came up and I just was crying and saying I just I can't do this anymore. So I said to her "Um, can you I don't know how to get out like how do I get out
2: From A Cocoa Punch and iHeartRadio, this is The Turning. I'm Erica Lance. Part six, The Third Floor.
4: I'm Sue Weber. Do you want, like, that little brief bio, blah, blah, or just introduce yourself? you don't have ourselves. to do the
2: whole bio. Okay. Can,
4: so I'm Sue yeah. Weber.
2: And who are you?
3: I'm Joan Worster.
2: And how do you two know each other?
3: We're
4: sisters. <laughs>
2: So let me clarify. Joan and Sue are former sisters with the Missionaries of Charity, but they're also sisters, like actual real-life sisters.
4: And we're the same age for 13 days.
2: Joan and Sue live in Pennsylvania. They huddle over a computer at Joan's house to video chat with me, squeezing together so they can both fit in the frame. I'm, I'm far
4: more stubborn than you are, wouldn't you say? Oh, you're pretty stubborn. Well, we're, yeah, stubborn. we're all stubborn. It's a family trait. <laughs> <laughs> in a positive um, way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't take a lot of things personally at all. I'm more sensitive. Yeah. She's much more sensitive Very. than I am. You're super protective, too. I am. For people who get hurt.
1: Mm-hmm. Or I
4: seek for justice a lot. That's a commonality. I and think I think
1: we that has to do have. with
3: the convent, but I've come to seek justice and truth in everything that I do and say.
2: Joan, the younger sister, has a certain gentleness. Sometimes she goes for a while without saying anything. She just listens.
3: Joan says her intimate relationship with God drives everything she does. I was the type of person that was always trying to please God. And then I realized that that he loves us unconditionally, and he loves us no matter where we are in life.
2: Sue, the older sister, is bold and open. Short haircut, big personality. Says it like it is.
4: I'm out there. I'm like up for anything.
2: Joan and Sue both joined the MCs. And like every sister, they followed the vow of obedience. The vow commits sisters to the power structure in the MCs. You vow to obey God by obeying your superior, promptly and without question. You become a pencil in God's hand, as Mother Teresa said. Or as a former sister put it, a tool without will or opinion of your own. That didn't work for Sue and Joan. Their story shows how power works in the order. Who has power? What happens as a result? And what happens when you push back on it? Sue would grapple with this from above, as a superior. Joan from below. Joan and Sue grew up in the 1970s in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a small city in the middle of Amish country. They went to Catholic school. At the time, Joan, the younger sister, toyed with the idea of going to college on a track scholarship. But she told me, in my soul, until I die, I know I was meant to be a nun. So in 1980, she joined a Franciscan order of nuns. She was 19 years old. But something was missing. The Franciscans she was with took a vow of poverty, but she didn't feel they took it far enough. Life was too comfortable. And then she learned more about Mother Teresa. I started reading some books about her, and I'm like, oh my word, she has it. While Joan was thinking about switching to the Missionaries of Charity, Sue beat her to it. She joined the MCs herself. Sue was 20, and she says the life suited her, especially helping the poor. When I asked her to tell me about some of the moments she found beautiful, she didn't know where to start.
4: Thousands! Literally, there are thousands of incredible, incredible beauty. Working among the poor, potentially making a difference in their lives. Six months in, Sue got
2: some news. Her mistress told her that Joan was joining the MCs. She was leaving the Franciscans and coming to the same convent as Sue. The mistress cautioned Sue, remember, no preferential love, even for family. When Joan joined, she learned the MCs had a different approach. For starters, no psychological test. The Franciscans required aspiring nuns to take one.
3: I actually think it's super important, because I think what happens is you're getting women who have mental issues, right? And Mother would just say, just love the sisters no matter what. But we had to live with them.
2: Daily life was different, too. The MCs were much more regimented. And she noticed that the MCs didn't hug each other, while the Franciscans
3: she'd been with hugged all the time. Nobody looks at anybody, nobody talks to anybody. It's grand silence.
2: And Joan felt the MCs did poverty right.
3: The poverty was, in my estimation, sensational. Like, everything we owned fit in a bucket. I love the simplicity.
2: Since Joan was new, it was nice to see a familiar face.
3: But my sister was rooted into the Missionaries of Charity way of life, right? So when there was complete silence, you know, I'd walk by her and kind of wink and do the things that I would do because I was just beginning. I'd nod or smile and, you know, she did do that when it was just her and I, but when she was in the group, she would pass me and not look at me. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh! (laughs) Because I was following the rules.
2: She was.
4: (laughs) She was a good nun. (laughs) Oh no, just in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> a year later, though, when they'd both be in a convent in San Francisco, they'd be more flexible. In the novitiate, we did sneak off
4: a lot of times. <laughs> On, the third, <laughs> third <floor. laughs> On
2: the third floor? On the
4: third floor. Well, my mom would send care packages, like of cookies, and, and especially around the holidays. They had to turn any
2: packages over to the Superior. From there, it was usually given to the poor or shared with the whole convent. But sometimes Sue would say to herself, Oh,
4: these are my favorite. These are Joan's favorite. So then I would like hide them. And then I would see Joan in the hall and I'd be like, meet me up on the third floor. And then we would sit up on these stacks of mattresses and eat the cookies. <laughs> and enjoyed every moment. Oh, yes.
3: <laughs> be worth any penance. <laughs> that
4: one But we one- never got caught.
3: No, we didn't. We are good.
2: <laughs> you guys have both referred to penance and i was just wondering when you say penance are you thinking of the discipline <laughs> chains that kind of
4: thing <laughs> you can go first <laughs> good okay uh so um i only share with very intimate people which is like my fellow sisters who left i don't know if mom even knows does she
3: i think she does oh, she does yeah. okay Well, she saw your change. That's
4: a question she asked. So I I didn't... It's a bracelet. But here's the thing, and I will make my full confession right here, right now, that I was not faithful to my penances because I thought they were crazy.
3: Joan's group of
2: aspirants learned about the discipline a few months in.
3: So then they said, you can go to the bathroom, but I go into the stall and I just... I couldn't do it. And I heard the sister next to me who was totally independences and she was beating herself. I could hear her. I'm thinking, dear God, I'd be yelling, ow, you know, and I thought, okay, I got to do something because they're probably listening to me as I'm listening to them. So I hit the sides of the walls <laughs> of the toilet and I was just going, you know, shh, shh, hitting the sides instead of hitting myself because I couldn't do it. And then gradually I began to do it and I, I then didn't have problems with it because I do believe that. If you do sacrifice yourself, I can gain grace with myself and I can also help someone else's soul. I believe that. To this day, I believe that.
2: Soon, Joan took the discipline every day. Then she got the spiked
3: arm chain, which she wore during Mass. I put it on and you're supposed to fold your hands because then it digs into your arm. And I felt Christ. I felt him as I've never, I mean, I I felt him.
4: I think the injustice came when rules were different for different people. So, for example, mm. one of the rules was you can't go home because we have to live a life of poverty. But then a regional superior who really liked another sister, she got to go home for her parents' funeral. It's, it's, everybody's at the mercy of whoever has power.
1: Mm.
4: They become the voice of God for you. That's all they keep saying. I'm the voice so of God for of you
0: at this
3: moment under your vow of obedience right no matter what it is and they use God as the weapon Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Joan felt that weapon and this is where her story diverged from Sue's
3: in New York I got something in my stomach where I was really really sick she
2: was in so much pain she had to crawl down the stairs her mistress didn't offer support
3: I would go to her and said, I'm really sick. And she would say, just, you know, give it to Jesus, offer it up, you'll be fine.
2: One day, a volunteer saw Joan and the condition she
3: was in. And she said, this little child needs to go to the doctor.
2: But Joan's mistress said no. It was the superior's decision to make, and the superior
3: was away. So I just continued on every day, crawling down the stairs. She made me come down to church no matter what, whether I was sick or not. I had to come in to try to work, which I couldn't. When the volunteer came back, she decided to take charge. She said, Sister, go get your shoes. You're going to die. You have
2: to go. Joan found out she had pancreatitis. Left untreated, it can be really serious.
3: So that's how it started.
2: Joan stayed in the hospital for a week. When she returned to the convent, she says something changed with her mistress. She targeted Joan, and she was relentless. First, she accused Joan of being too friendly with a man, a seminarian who had prayed with her while she was in the hospital. Then, of trying to seduce the men coming into the soup kitchen for meals.
3: I was, like, shocked. I was shocked that she was saying it. I never even thought it. I'm not going after anyone. So she accused me of that, and... So much more. Joan says it was impossible to please her.
2: Like the time her mistress told her to teach English to some sisters from South America. Joan didn't know any Spanish. She says she did her best to teach them. But every time one of the sisters made a mistake in English, the mistress made Joan do penance.
3: So I used to tell them to not speak. I said, can you please not just speak (laughs) and save me from my penances?
2: Sometimes her mistress made her kneel in silence beside the refectory table while everyone else ate and talked. These humiliations, the accusations, the little digs, they all piled
3: up. She would tell me I wasn't holy, tell me I was prideful, tell me that Jesus knows you're a fake and a phony, and all these kinds of things she would say to me, right? So um,
2: That must have been really hard to hear. It was very hard. Joan began to question her vocation. Is this really what God wanted for her? After six months, she was sent to a convent in Chicago for postulancy with a new mistress.
3: I thought I died and went to heaven. She was wonderful, beautiful.
2: Free from the belittling mistress in New York, Joan could focus on the parts of religious life that fueled her. Visiting shut-ins, working at the soup kitchens and shelters. But then word spread that the mistress in New York might be transferred to Chicago. Panic set in.
3: One sister in my group, she took an iron and burnt her leg as penance. Penance so the mistress wouldn't be assigned to Chicago. That's how much people did not like her.
2: But the penance was in vain. The mistress transferred to Chicago, and Joan says she started right in again.
3: She would call me in and she would scream at me and tell me that I'm very irresponsible, and she would yell at me and say, you're stupid.
2: There were times when Joan had no
3: idea what she'd done wrong. She cried in the chapel and prayed. Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? I only wanted to come and serve you. I was angry and hurt and sad, and I was all of those.
2: Finally, Joan spoke with her superior, the nun above her mistress. She tried to explain it all, but the superior told Joan to forgive her mistress. She said, can you try and love her? I said, okay, I'll try. But there was only so much Joan could take. She was at a breaking point. So she turned to the one person she thought could change things, Mother Teresa. When Mother Teresa visited, Joan had a one on one meeting with her. She says she told Mother Teresa everything that happened with
3: her mistress. And I was crying and sobbing, and I said, I don't know, I don't think Jesus wants me here, Mother. I, I don't know what to do. And she said, Sister Maria Fatima, be only all for Jesus. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, really? That's all you got? That's what you're gonna tell me? You're not gonna take this evil woman away from me? You're not gonna stop this abuse? You're not gonna do anything about it? You're just gonna let me continue to suffer? That's how I and felt. And did you say that or that's what you were No, thinking. I was thinking I didn't say a word. It's Mother Teresa, you know what I mean? I should didn't say a word. <laughs> that's the difference between me and my sister. My sister would have told her. <laughs> I would not. I just kept quiet. I just accepted it.
2: By now, Joan had been in the order for a year. It was time to become a novice, which for her meant to transfer to San Francisco, the same convent as Sue. Before she left, she had
3: a meeting with her mistress. And she said, I know that I've been very, very hard on you. I wanted to break your spirit. I wanted you to become humble because I know you're gonna be something great in this community. And I said to her, what? and I'm gonna tell you something, you as a mistress have the power to make or break a vocation and you have broken mine. And you live with that.
2: In California, Sue had no idea what her younger sister was going through. Even now that they were in the same convent, they couldn't really talk about it. Joan hung on, but she was fragile. And then she got a package from her mom. It was full of family photos.
3: Pictures of our family reunion. And I think because I was struggling so much there at that moment... That when she sent those pictures, it was a trigger for me. So that day,
2: Joan found her big sister and told her to go to their spot.
3: I said, meet me up on the third floor. And then she came up and I just was crying and saying, I just, I can't do this anymore. Um, I'm
4: going to get emotional. I know, me too. I'm Because (laughs) we're both going to be crying right here. (laughs) And
3: so I said to her, "Um, can you, I don't know how to get out. Like,
4: how do I get out? You, you could tell that she was suffering. Like you could just physically tell she was suffering. And I was super clear if she stayed, it it would have been so massively unhealthy. And she said,
3: the only way you can get out is if you say that you can't live the celibate life <laughs> because every other way they would talk you into staying. So I went down to the sister and I said, um, I can't live the celibate life. Like every time I go on a tram car, I look at guys It was all lies. (laughs) It wasn't true. But I told her that. And she said, if you would have said anything else, I would have asked you to stay. But because you said you can't live the celibate life, I understand that that's a gift from God. And from there, it was kind of quick, like, call your parents. And I said to meet me and that I was getting on this flight. And then it was all like kind of quietly done, like, hush, hush, go down and get clothing. At this time, I was super skinny. And kind of sickly looking, but I put clothing on and I still felt that I was called. She truly
4: felt called. And then there was no healthy soil for that call to grow.
3: The saddest part for me was that my soul didn't want to leave because I loved the work and I loved the prayer. I loved the whole life, but mentally I was losing Joan. And then I went into the chapel, and my name was Sister Maria Fatima, and everybody there was singing this Our Lady of Fatima song. And I was kneeling, and I was crying. It was like I was having an out-of-body experience. When I walked out the door, I left my soul in the chapel. The very depth of my soul was still there, because I didn't really want to go. But
4: my body was taking me out. and it was so painful to watch. And then for me, the fear of like, is that going to happen to me? Like, am I gonna lose myself?
0: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
2: Even though Joan left, Sue stayed. She progressed through the ranks of the order— took her first vows, took her final vows. She became a superior, and she stayed in the MCs for over a decade, working all over the country in women's shelters and soup kitchens. Sue says her outspoken nature helped. And she knew how to navigate the system, like the time Mother Teresa visited the MC house in Baton Rouge, where Sue
4: was running a summer camp. She'd be like, how's it going? And I basically lied. I basically said, oh, it's just really hard, because I knew she wouldn't transfer me. Wow. But if I would have went in and said, oh, I love it here, and I probably would have got transferred.
2: <laughs> you kind of learned the code to continue doing what you wanted. Correct. Because I've definitely Correct. heard from other people you know, expressing a lot of enthusiasm for something and then getting pulled and off of that down. job. Yep. Like, oh, she's enjoying yep. that too much.
4: Yes, I think that happened a lot. And I'm super intuitive in that way. So as soon as I know the code, I'm in.
2: Sue had been an MC for about 10 years when she became a superior. She was transferred to the MC AIDS hospice in San Francisco. It was a three-story wooden house. The sisters lived on the first floor.
4: So when I first got there, there were six of us total. And there were three that I would say could function and carry out duties well. And there were three that were really struggling
2: First, she had to learn to manage the house with no training.
4: So you kind of go in blind? You don't kind of go in blind. You go in blind. Just pray and you'll get the grace to do what needs to be done.
2: So she relied on her intuition in the hospice. It was rewarding to care for these men with AIDS who were dying.
4: Most of these men were rejected from their families. Like when we tried to reach their families, they didn't want anything to do with it. I mean, that was the early 90s. The stigma was still there. This one young man, Lamont, and he was young, beautiful, funny. We contacted his family. I mean, at this time, he couldn't get up, he couldn't sit up. I mean, he was completely bedridden. And so I said to him, hey, I have a surprise for you. And then he said, what? And First, I just brought his mother. And he just burst into tears and she burst into tears and then she came over and held him, almost like a child again, like got underneath him and held him and just kept kissing him and telling him how much she loved him. And, oh, he sobbed, 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 sobbed. And, and then the siblings came in. They were a very exuberant family and so you would just hear them laughing and they would sing. And then for like three days, it was just like party time. <laughs> it was so sweet the mom had put an 8-track tape we had a little tape recorder thing and she put the 8-track tape in and hit the button this voice and song was unbelievable it gave me chills and I said to her that is so beautiful and she goes that's Lamont he had an exquisite voice and then he passed away like like a day after that.
2: As a superior, Sue was now technically the direct voice of God. though she never thought of it that way. Now she could make her own rules, she could eat what she wanted, even form relationships outside the convent. Having power for the first time in years led her to act in ways she didn't expect.
4: When you are in an organization that suppresses the human spirit in the ways that it had done, you always think, you know, if I was superior, I would never act like that. I would be kind. I would listen. And what you realized is the second you became superior, you had a lot of freedom and power that was suppressed for many, many years.
2: One time, a nun under Sue's supervision told her she was sick.
4: She would say, I can't do X, whatever. But I remember going, yes, you can. You're not that sick. And I had the power to make her do those things.
2: One night, while the sisters slept, Sue snuck out to the chapel,
4: just sat alone in the quiet. And all of a sudden, there was this moment of, my God, you are being exactly, you are doing and being exactly the things you said you weren't going to be or do. What is wrong with you? You know, you're wielding power. The whole infamous absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's you had absolute power. In that microcosm, absolutely. And then I shifted completely.
2: Sue decided to change her whole approach. She'd listen, not reprimand, not humiliate. She'd start with kindness. But she was about to learn that her absolute power wasn't really absolute. One day, Sue got a call from Mother Teresa about a transfer. A new nun was coming to work at the hospice.
4: And she said, I'm sending you sister so-and-so. She's a gift from Jesus, and you just need to love her. I mean, the standing joke as superiors were, if you get a phone call from Mother or a regional superior, and they say, oh, we have a gift for you. We're going to send a sister to your house. That was a big red flag, because that was like, Oh, we're getting somebody who's... They're struggling somewhere else, and they're moving them. Like, mm. So it was a standing joke. We're like, eh, you can just keep the gift. <laughs> <laughs> so this sister comes in. Now, we're in a wooden building with non-ambulatory patients on the second floor. No elevators, no nothing. Like, if there's a fire, you have to carry them down the stairs and out the door, Okay. I think it was like day three and everybody's in bed and we all sleep in a common dormitory and Sue wakes up
2: she smells something maybe smoke so she hops off her cot
4: I'm like throwing on my sorry and I I fly past the chapel and out of the corner of my eye I catch flames
2: she rushes into the chapel the new sister is inside
4: the sister had taken all the trash and put it under the altar and lit it on fire and was just kneeling there, staring into the fire. And I don't know why I didn't panic, but I didn't. And so I went next to her and I was like, sister, do you know that there's, there's a fire under the altar? And she turned to me and she looked me right in the eye and she goes, do you know I am possessed? And I said, I don't know about that, but I know I have to put that fire out.
2: (laughs) The next morning, the sister tells Sue she has no memory of the fire. But then she does it again. Soon, Sue says, this sister is setting fires every few days. Of course, Sue's a wreck. She's losing sleep. She doesn't know what to do. She calls her regional superior, who says, just talk to her. But that doesn't help. So she calls Mother Teresa, Sue suggests sending the sister to a psychotherapist.
4: And I said, I'm really struggling. And Mother said, just give her time, sister, and just keep loving her. And, and when I hung up, I had great clarity. There's no way that I'm going to be able to manage this.
2: While all of this was happening with Sue, Joan had to make a new life. When she left the MCs, Joan did the only thing she could do with no money and no practical work experience and really no sense of what was possible. She went home to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But her mistress's words followed her. She says they were like tapes, these memories of every terrible thing her mistress said playing over and over.
3: Jesus knows you're a fake and a phony. You're stupid. Serves you right. Joan still felt called to be a nun. She went to church, But now she felt like an imposter. And then people would come to me and say, you're so holy. I would leave that church and go to another church so that no one would know me. And so I I could not be noticed. And that's the worst thing that, to this day, I don't want to be noticed.
2: There was another tape that played in her head. The words of one of her confessors. That's a priest you confess your sins to, or who serves as a spiritual guide. Father Donald McGuire was a Jesuit priest. He was convicted of sexually abusing boys and eventually sentenced in 2009 to 25 years in prison. But before that, he was often assigned as a confessor for MC sisters, including Sue and Joan. Years before he was sentenced, Donald McGuire
3: told Joan something that would haunt her. And he said to us, if you make it to the novitiate and you leave, you'll have handicapped children, you'll get divorced, and bad things will happen to you because God wants you here. This stuck with Joan because
2: she had made it to the novitiate and left. Once she did, she felt like Father McGuire's warning started to come true.
3: I went home in January. Now, mind you, for the last two years, no love, no nothing. I met this man. He said he loved me, went to church with me, the whole nine yards. Eventually, they got married. I had this huge wedding. Nuns were singing in my wedding. I mean, it was huge. But Joan wasn't happy for long.
2: She says the relationship ended horribly after three months.
3: Okay, so now here I am, an ex-nun, and a man leaves me. And he said to us, if you leave, you'll get divorced, you'll have handicapped children, and bad things will happen to you. So I thought, okay, I can't be a nun. I can't be married. So I went up to uh, this place we have called Peckway Pinnacle.
2: She hiked through the woods up to an overlook on a tall hill near home. She could see water and trees stretched out below. This place was special to Joan. She used to talk to God here. It was where she felt her call to religious life. This time was different.
3: I was going to jump, right, kill myself, because um, God must hate me. So when I went up there, I went to jump, and a snake slithered up in front of me. And um, I hate snakes. So I was scared to death, so I ran back to my car and got in my car and then went back home. Want to meet erica oh, let's go meet erica look here look look there's
2: erica now joan is a mother and a grandmother her daughter hannah has a toddler and they live next door
3: i try to live in god's will and let god unfold the will so right now the will for me is to be a great mom and a grandmother and i lead a company
2: she remarried to a man she calls kind and patient named tom
3: before we got married i said don't marry me because I can never love you the way you deserve to be loved because I love God ultimately to the nth degree. God is what I love the most, and that's where I spend most of my time. But that didn't deter Tom. And he just said, no, I, you know, I love you.
2: Joan made a life outside the convent. She built a small chapel for prayer in her backyard. She lived her faith in a different way. And then one day, someone showed up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a woman in a white sari with blue stripes. It was her sister, Sue.
1: Right rug flooring.
2: In the years before Sue Webber returned to Pennsylvania, her time as a superior had brought her a step deeper into the organization. It also gave her a new vantage point.
4: When I became superior, and I had more time to think, that opened the door to really question a lot of things.
2: She already had a growing list of concerns about the missionaries of charity, like how sisters were treated, and how sisters in leadership roles used their authority.
4: So you have sisters who were amazing and, in my opinion, didn't even wield power. And then you had sisters who wield it to the nth degree, you know. Everybody's at the mercy of whoever has power.
2: There is something else that bothered her. She thinks Mother Teresa founded this order based on what worked for Mother Teresa. She got to follow her calling. She founded her own order. She established the rules. The Missionaries of Charity was an extension of her personality and drive. But the way Sue saw it, the sisters inside this order couldn't follow their own calling. Just obey. Just follow assignments, regardless of feeling. Sue says this one-size-fits-all doesn't work, especially for a group of women from around the world. One former sister told me a convent she was in had something like 27 nationalities all living together. It sometimes led to language and cultural issues. So you tried to explain that to Mother Teresa,
4: trying to get her to understand that everybody is not the same. Hmm. Like, everybody's coming in, all of us, with our baggage. And in her mind, the second you crossed over the threshold to the order, all of that disappears, or it should disappear. And in the utopia of life, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Like, right, everybody just goes in and then we all just love each other. Instead, Sue
2: saw sisters struggle. They were tired and stressed and grappled with language barriers. Some needed psychological care. And no one seemed to fix the problems.
4: I realized that the order was... Wired that you had very little time to think. So you had your morning prayer and your adoration. I I can't speak for anybody else, but all I ever did was worked really hard not to fall asleep during that time. I've heard that from a number of people. Which should have been the time where you... Can think and have your thought process. If you're in a bad relationship, if all your energy is in the bad relationship, you don't have the capacity to look at it through another lens. I could no longer live what I felt I was being called to.
2: At one point, Sue learned about a letter Mother Teresa wrote.
4: She was struggling with, do I serve the sisters or do I serve the poor? and i will never forget this she wrote a letter to the pope and the pope wrote back and this is what he said give necessary care to your sisters and loving care to the poor and i was like wtf seriously that is insane like give necess- like the very people who are carrying out your work the reality is without her sisters the order doesn't exist women who were willing to dedicate their life to the service of the poor. You're going to give them necessary care only? And you're giving loving care to the poor? Yeah, I, I, went, that's what, I went off the deep end on that one. Because <laughs> you wanted loving care for the sisters. Yes, because anybody understands humanity, you can't give what you don't have. So if you have an order of sisters who are not being filled with love... How are they going to be loving? And you see that in houses where we've been accused, and rightly so, of mistreating people. And for me, it wasn't about these sisters are bad people. They were empty. They were empty. And you can't live that kind of a life if you're empty.
2: By 1993, Sue felt like she was on the verge of a breakdown. So she asked for a temporary leave. She went back to her parents' house in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, still wearing the sari. She kept her MC rituals. She rose early. She prayed. But something had changed. Maybe she wasn't called to life in the convent anymore. But someone else did
3: feel the call. Joan. I still felt that I was called, no matter what. And I don't think it ever changes. For me, it never has changed. And I fight that constantly. So it was hard for her to see Sue back in
2: their parents' house, dressed in the blue and white sari, a superior. When I left the Missionaries
3: of Charity, I kept a lot to myself. Again, I don't share a lot with people. I mean, I'm surprised I'm sharing what I'm sharing with you. I think at one point I felt weak that I couldn't do it. Um, And so I was probably a little jealous of her that she got to stay in and she was doing it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, then, um, also, knew. <laughs> and then also I was a little hurt because I guess I wanted her to sway me to stay when I told her I was going to leave. So for a couple years, I probably blamed her that she didn't think I had a vocation, but I knew in my soul I did. And so I was kind of hurt by her, but it was me. It wasn't her. She wasn't intentionally hurting me, but I felt hurt by that because I felt like she didn't defend my vocation.
2: That must have been really hard. Have you talked about this before? What is it like to hear that, Sue?
4: I'm not surprised, and it makes sense that she would feel that way. For me, it wasn't about saying somebody had a vocation or not. For me, it was more of a protective, you're not going to be who you are if you stay here.
2: After nine months in Lancaster, the reasons for Sue to leave began to outweigh her desire to stay. She stopped wearing the
4: sari. She wasn't going back. I was recognizing that I was no longer true to myself, and that I couldn't be true to myself if I stayed in there.
2: Mother Teresa asked her for a meeting in Harlem, one last attempt to change Sue's mind. Joan drove her there, and the two of them walked into the convent together.
4: There was a woman who made sure nobody saw me, snuck me into a parlor. And then when all the sisters had gone to the chapel, she snuck me from the parlor to where mother's room was. Mother had her head down. I knelt down to get her blessing and she blessed me. And then I sat on the chair and then she immediately was like, You need to come back. This is where God's calling you. Mother Mary wants you here. Mother Teresa, she had all her little axioms. She had all her little snippets that were exactly the same every single time you went to the table. So I felt like I was not being heard. I wanted to be heard. And finally, I said, Mother, I I don't know if I want to come back. I said, things would have to really change for me. She said, you need to come back. Sister Kiera is in Russia. She converted this many people to Catholicism. And that just made me like rear up. And I looked her right in the eye and I said, yes. And you have over 3,000 women religious dying in your community. At this
2: point, Sue was yelling. Joan could hear it from the next room.
4: And then she kind of sat back, pulled up. And then I really felt like I was being heard.
2: But by then, it didn't matter. Nothing Mother Teresa could say would change Sue's mind. She left. Not long after she left the convent, Sue went on a spiritual retreat to reflect and figure out what to do.
4: I was doing a three-month retreat, silent retreat. I was in this tiny little, like, 300-square-foot cabin in this vast forest and incredible beauty of nature and wood-burning stoves so all the wood was stacked outside and it's winter and I just took a lot of books and all written by priests and stuff and I started reading this book there was a section that said there are I forget how many 10 I think 10 signs that you are in a cult and and I'm reading this book and I'm just like, oh my God, this is the Missionaries of Charity. This is the Missionaries of Charity. And I felt like it was the first time I was reading something that was like validating my experience. And all of a sudden, I get to the end of the book and this priest says, a perfect example of a non-cult is the Missionaries of Charity. I literally get up off my sofa. I open the door. It's snowing like crazy. I fling the book out across the the lawn. I end up taking all the wood and pitching it out. I, I was, I was livid, like livid. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I go back out in the snow looking for the book that I threw out. I find it. I bring the book back in and I sit down and proceed to write this man a letter. And basically say, for you to have made a statement like that, never having lived in that order, is not only dangerous, it is untruthful.
2: Thanks so much for listening, and stick with us, because there's a lot more in the coming weeks.
0: This is the first time that I have ever encountered uh, any form of sexual uh, violation or abuse in the missionaries of charity. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist.
2: The Turning is written by Alan Lance Lesser and me. Our producers are Alan Lance Lesser and Emily Foreman. Our editor is Rob Rosenthal. Andrea Asuaje is our digital producer. Fact-checking by Andrea lopez Cruzado. Special thanks to Amy Gaines, Sarah Olender, Catherine Joyce, Beth Ann Macaluso, Travis Dunlap, and consulting producer Mary Johnson. Her memoir, An Unquenchable Thirst, provided inspiration for this series. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert and John Parati from Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell from iHeartRadio. Our theme music is by Matt Reed. For photos and more details on the series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch. You can reach out via email to theturning at RococoPunch.com. I'm Erica Lance.